and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. One of the people I most love talking to in the television industry is Paula Kerger, who's the president and CEO of PBS. When I tell people that, they often are sort of taken aback or confused. PBS seems like that thing to a lot of my contemporaries that they know it's on TV and they know it's it does good stuff and maybe and is, is even in many cases a public good, but... At the same time, they're like, who watches PBS? Is that, is that for my grandparents or for my parents? And yet, I know so many people who on the sly are like big PBS fans. Like they love to watch the, the Ken Burns documentaries on Netflix or they were really into Downton Abbey or Sherlock or something like that. So I know all y'all are secret PBS fans, and I know you're going to love this discussion. Paula and I get into a lot of the basics of how PBS runs, how it operates, and why the Trump administration's threat to cut funding to the Corporation of Public Broadcasting hurts rural viewers more than it hurts PBS itself in many ways. We're going to talk about that and many other things in this upcoming hour. I hope you find it fascinating. Just as a note to all our listeners, this episode was recorded in a hotel. We were in an out-of-the-way room. We were in kind of a pretty quiet space. You won't hear too much difference, but if you hear any like doors opening or anything like that, that's because we were in a public space. But we really wanted to get Paula on the show, and that was how we were able to do it. Paula, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a wonderful pleasure to be with you today. So we are at the uh, Summer Television Critics Association press tour, which I'm not going to try explaining to my listeners in any great detail, but basically the various TV networks come and give little presentations about what they have coming up. One of the things that grabbed me about what PBS has coming up is you're talking about talking to Americans, having them pick their favorite book, do a Great American Read, I think is the name of it. It's yeah, going to the be Great in, American yeah. Read. It'll mm-hmm. premiere next year, uh, probably beginning into in the spring. Right. And the whole idea behind it is, um, well, it's a little like Oprah's Book Club sure. idea, except it's in reverse. Instead of someone picking a book saying, hey, this is someone something that you should read, it is all of America coming together and trying to pick our collective favorite book. Sure, sure. Well, I wanted to ask the inevitable question of that, which is, which book would you want to stand up for if you if you had to vote? I assume you're going to vote in this poll, but which, which book would you stand up yeah, for? Yeah, I guess they'll let me vote. I, I, I don't think I'll get disqualified. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big reader and uh, have always been since I was a kid. And I've I've been really wrestling with this whole question of right. my favorite book because there are books that were hugely important to me in different uh, parts of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of growing up, I loved reading Don Quixote, which yeah. for me was just this amazing journey. And I still I've gone back and I've reread it several times. As an adult, I read Moby Dick. Right. Somehow, I think I was supposed to have read it in school, but yeah. I didn't quite do that. And um, and and that was a great piece of work, which would have been lost on me as a kid. So, yeah. you know, I'm sort of wrestling with that. Um, one of my favorite books of all time is The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Um, so that may win my vote. And then one of my um, favorite writers is, is the Japanese writer Haruki Murakami, who wrote The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, uh, yeah. amongst other things. I've read all of his books. And that is just an amazingly strange and... And, you know, involving story that, you know, there's similarities to it um, through all the rest of his work. And I love that. So I've just told you my favorite books. And I think at the end of the day, I'm going to end up voting for The Great Gatsby. That would be my vote, The mm. Great Gatsby. I read that. I tell this story a lot and people always make fun of me for it. But I read that in high school, as so many of us did. And those last, those last three chapters, uh, when I got done with them, I had to like stand up and like walk around. I was reading it in my bedroom. I had to like walk around because I was like so emotionally overwhelmed by it. But yeah, that to me is just like, you talk about the great American novel, like that to me expresses so much of what America wants to be and so often fails to be. Exactly right. Now, have you reread it as an adult? I have. I reread it uh, probably about five years ago. I yeah. was just as impressed by it. And this time I was more into the early stuff, whereas in mm-hmm. high school I was like, this is kind of long-winded. <laughs> and, and, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. I, th- I think that would be my pick as well. I mean, just think of all that imagery, the Valley of Ashes, yeah. and I, I mean, it's just, and of course, the the beacon of the light at the end of the dock, and, yeah. you know, all of the possibilities not quite within your, your reach, and and I, there's there's so much in it, so I think that'll be that'll be our vote. Is that going to be your that's, vote? That's my vote. Right, that's my so, vote. There we go. Yeah, maybe we can sway the country and bring everyone <laughs> together around the Great Gatsby. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll be something. That'll be something America can finally agree on. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been coming to uh, these PBS sessions since 2011. 
And the first few ones, it was kind of like you had to, you were still looking for a corporate sponsorship for Masterpiece and had just found it. You had some of these, some of these questions of like PBS, uh, you know, some of these financial questions were sort of hanging over it. And then in the time I've been coming, you've had Downton Abbey, you've had some of these hits or awards hits and some of these things that have done really well. And yet at the same time, the political question of PBS has gotten much more fraught, which is strange to me because it, 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 I was not expecting that. But you come into this session when this, uh, this spring there was a budget uh, from the Trump administration that, that essentially cut the Corporation for Public Broadcasting altogether. How have you been weathering that? Obviously, it hasn't gone into law yet, so it hasn't happened yet. But how have you been sort of girding yourselves for that uh, heading forward? So um, since you've been coming since 2011, um, let me just give you some, you know, sort of deeper history around funding for public broadcasting. So, you know, for you, maybe a bit of a surprise um, for those that have followed our uh, funding uh, issues over the years, you know, on a periodic basis, there's been discussions about, you know, as I think as there's debates about everything uh, that receives funding from the federal government is the appropriateness of it. And uh, this particular discussion has been one that, you know, we're just working hard to make sure that during this process, uh, those that are that will make the ultimate decision, and you know, this will really be settled in Congress, um, really have the facts about the impact of what we do, and and so as they're making you know, their determinations on appropriate budget levels, um, understanding both the reach, the impact, and the consequence, right? Right. So, um, yeah, so starting with the administration who puts together the original budget, there was a recommendation of, of, of no money for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And uh, then, um, of course, the discussion moved, moves to the House first, not to give your listeners a civics lesson, but <laughs> hey, what the hell. And, you know, the House, beginning first with the Labor HHS Committee, which is where our funding sits, uh, the chair of that committee, Tom Cole from Oklahoma, you know, knows very well the work that we've done uh, locally across that state and uh, is a supporter of ours. And the committee actually even had a hearing. There aren't so many hearings anymore, but there was a hearing on public broadcasting. And then the committee came out with the recommendation of, in essence, full funding, at least for the main appropriation and the work that we do for kids and um, didn't address the funding for our infrastructure. Uh, but that was a pretty good outcome. We were very happy about that. Mm-hmm. And in these tough times, uh, you know, flat funding is uh, something that, you know, we celebrate and uh, went to the full committee. Full committee said they agreed with the recommendation. So that rolled forward. Within 24 hours of the appropriations committee, the budget committee met and represent and recommended zero funding. And mm-hmm. if you read through the budget document, it really questions the appropriateness of government role in arts, culture, and um, and public broadcasting. So zeroed out both the NEA, the NEH, as well as the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So now what happens? Right. Um, we will look at the fall when the Senate will take up the discussion. We've always had really good um, support on both sides of the aisle, and we've always had more support in the Senate. So, you know, over the summer, we're hoping that our stations will continue to, um, you know, reach out to legislators, bring them into the studios, let them see exactly what it is that their local stations are doing, because that's where the money goes, by the way. Right. The majority of the money goes directly to our local stations, and we'll see how it plays through with the Senate. Um, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, but these are unusual times. And right. I think as this rolls through, you know, we just all have to be, um, you know, I think especially focused on making sure that people understand, you know, the impact of our work. So what is the consequence if the money goes away? Yeah. So, you know, I spent 13 years of my life in New York City working at WNET. Um, that station would be impacted for sure. Uh, but would it go off the air? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would look different. It would it would have less resources for a number of the things that it does, and how that exactly plays out, um, I can't fully tell you now. But it would it would certainly be a painful moment. But for many of our stations, particularly stations that are in rural parts of the country, that have communities that are not as able to provide philanthropic support, 
those stations um, really face an existential crisis. Right. And um, we have estimated about 80 of our stations would have very significant, if not fatal, result if the, if this cut hangs. So, you know, we're, we'll see. Um, I am um, always heartened when I hear from legislators that they've heard from their constituents, and I do know that uh, many stations have encouraged people that watch and care about it to weigh in and let their opinions be heard. So right. that's what has helped us in the past when uh, this question has come up, and I assume through this process that will be the same. But I think we just have to be very focused in making sure that if people care about what we provide, that they let legislators know. Yeah, yeah. We've You and I have talked about this a number of times because I, I grew up in a rural area. I think I say that on every podcast, like that's become a meme now. Um, <laughs> but you and I have talked about this a lot, like how if the funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, government funding is cut, like, PBS will still exist, you know, Ken Burns will still be making movies, like all of these things will still be happening, but a lot of these rural stations will effectively go away. They'll in close. Cases. Yeah. Can you tell me like why the that money is so beneficial to some of these rural uh, stations in, in out-of-the-way areas? So um, the way that we were set up, you know, after Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act was around this whole idea that we would be this public-private partnership and Mm -hmm. that the important, one of the most important sort of overarching goals as we moved forward was to ensure universal access. And so that it didn't matter where you lived or the, um, you know, the economic means of your community that you would have access to material. Now, so many people rely on... Um, over-the-air television. And I think that the significance is uh, really on two levels. One is our local stations play an important role in their communities. I spend a lot of time on the road. I visit a lot of our stations, particularly in in small communities around the country. And I see that the role that they play for children, a lot of our stations are heavily involved in classroom and are providing materials I look at the work that stations do in convening community conversation around important issues. We have Ken Burns' series on the war, the Vietnam War coming up. And a lot of stations across the country, I would say most stations are doing either local documentaries or oral histories or something. But they're connected to their local community. Right. And I think that um, losing that mm-hmm. um, is hugely important, having people that are in local communities that make the decision ultimately about what ends up on the air and that produce stories about their own community. I think of our station in Cookville, Tennessee. I've been to visit that station and she's got, you know, just bookshelves and bookshelves of old tape that really chronicles the entire cultural history of um, of Northeastern Tennessee. Right. And so I think that... Um, Putting that at consequence, I think, is huge. But I think beyond that, there's so many people that rely on over-the-air television. Sure. And, you know, for those that, you know, have cable and satellite and access to other things, you know, that's great to have all those resources. But the reality is, is that 20% of people in this country don't have, don't have are not connected to cable or satellite. Um, a significant number of people, 16%, um, don't have access to broadband. Yeah. And cutting... Those stations means that people that I've just described in those categories don't have access to our programming. Yeah. And I argue that those are, are some of the communities that actually rely on us the most. Right. I visit rural communities, and I have people talk to me about the fact that they want to bring their kids up in the same community that they grew up. But they also don't want their kids to be disadvantaged, and they feel that we're a bridge, that we can give their kids a view of a much wider world uh, because we are there. And um, that's—I think that's what's at risk. So I think this idea that I think some must have, that we're just of interest to either coast and that they have this idea of who watches public broadcasting— is is fairly far from the mark. Sure, sure. Do you have a sense of of how widely viewed you are in in rural areas? I know that like PBS is not as ratings hungry as a lot of you know commercial enterprises, but certainly you must have some sense of how well watched you are in various areas. We're significantly well watched in in um, in rural areas and in every part of the country. You know, you can break it out because obviously we have two very distinct audiences. We have our audiences for young children, and Mm -hmm. I can tell you a lot about that right now because we just launched a 24-hour children's channel 
which is broadcast, which, you know, feels, again, in this day and age, so strange that, yeah. you know, we would be launching a broadcast channel. It's also streamed, so we're interested in reaching kids wherever they are. So there are a lot of kids that are watching on smartphones and tablets and so forth, so we're there for them. But the whole focus of this is built off of a broadcast basis was to make sure that we were reaching kids in rural communities and in particularly kids that don't have access to uh, to cable in the home or broadband in the home. And the numbers are quite large, and those do skew towards, um, you know, the rural parts of the country. So, yeah. uh, you know, our audiences actually are, are, are larger in those areas than they are in others. And, you know, we're talking about advertising. You know, that is not a demographic always that advertisers are most focused on. They're focused on very young um, people with disposable income, and yeah. that's where they're focusing the program investment. And And our interest is to try to figure out, you know, where are the market gaps and how can we be there with content that will actually make a difference in people's lives. Sure, sure. Do you have a sense of how many people in the country are uh, watching uh, over the air with through over an antenna or not through uh, cable or satellite? I checked this number actually right before I came out to TCA because we'd always, I'd always heard it was, uh, you know, roughly around 15%, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe depending on the community, a little less, a little more. And, um, and actually the number now is 20%. And part of that is cord cutters that are now starting to really be seen Mm -hmm. in the, in the numbers. And a lot of it are people that, you know, um, again, are in parts of the country where cable and satellite isn't as available or affordable. And affordable is probably the biggest issue for so many families. If, right. if you are really having to make hard decisions, it is difficult to um, to think about um, spending a significant amount of money for cable. And um, and they feel that, you know, we offer enough that um, over-the-air broadcasters offer enough that, you know, meet their media needs. Right. So you were talking about trying to find people where they are, and some people are on streaming, and some people are on, you know, they're getting TV off an antenna, and it strikes me as sort of another example of how America is splintering and, and turning into a lot of, a, a nation of niches in some ways, especially in the entertainment industry, but we see that in our political environment, we see that in all sorts of socio-cultural ways. PBS, though, is this, it's still this this thing that is everywhere and everybody knows what it is and it kind of stands for something. How have you weathered that to continue being sort of this brand name people know and, and in most cases trust um, as the world has gotten more splintered? Well, I, I've talked a little bit um, already about the fact that, you know, that we're local, which I think makes a difference. I think <laughs> that, you know, there, we're in this whole debate about the media and the media feels like it's this sort of, you know, nebulous thing that is from away. But because we actually do sit in local communities, it's a lot harder uh, to be suspicious of a media organization if it's actually in your own backyard Mm -hmm. and you know the people that are involved in creating the work or at least making the decision about what work is, is brought into the community. So I think I think that's important. I think the second thing is that um, we are trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, Politico and um, Morning Consult just did a survey of media organizations, and it was frustrating to me because the um, the headlines once the survey was released really were talking about CNN's ratings versus Trump's ratings, and what does that mean? But right. the but the headline that got buried is that the number one most trusted media organization looking at, looking at both broadcast as well as print was yeah. us. Hmm. And so if, if in fact, we're, we are trusted, uh, which I know that we are because we look at the polls every year and we you know, pay attention to all this because our fates are so connected to our ability to connect to communities. So we do care what people think about us. Um, I think that I think that raises the bar for us right. as an organization to figure out ways that we can bring people together around the important issues of our time. Right. If we are trusted by people of all political stripes, which I know we are, then it feels like we could actually be the safe convener for important discussions uh, because people know that we are focused not on that sensationalist soundbite that's going to grab an advertiser or potentially, you know, grab a, a slightly higher rating point. We're interested in getting at the substance of it. I think it's that's part of the reason why ratings for the news hour have gone up significantly this year. I had a guy tell me that uh, recently 
that is very involved with the evangelical community that a lot of evangelicals are now watching um, our news because they look at it as a trusted source of fact. Mm -hmm. And I think with all the swirl around, you know, post-fact society or whatever, people want to know the truth. Right. They want. They don't want to be told what to think. They just want the information, and from that, they want to be able to make their own decisions. And I think that, you know, our commitment to trying to tell the truth, our commitment to trying to bring different viewpoints together and creating a safe space for conversation is what differentiates us from most other media organizations. I think back to um, a trip that I made uh, right after the uh, riots in Ferguson. Mm. And I was visiting with our station there, and they had convened a town hall meeting that Gwen Eiffel then had moderated. And they had brought together people in the community and had a deep conversation about, you know, the issues that had created, um, you know, the suspicions with the police and, and how things had just completely fallen apart. And they were able to get, through our station, um, a lot of participation in that town hall, which we then broadcast nationally. And the head of our station, um, you know, was talking to me, and, and, and it struck me as he was driving me around Ferguson, and he wanted me to see, one, where everything had happened. He wanted me to see where all the other media trucks had been parked. Right. And he wanted me to, to understand just how everything had laid out in those in those few days. And... People in the community afterwards said to me, look, we decided we were going to participate in your town hall because, one, we knew that people that were from our community were involved in organizing it. And the second is that we knew that you're actually going to be there for the long term. You didn't just jet in to get some images that you were going to you know, put out on the nightly news and maybe cover for a couple days and, and get the, you know, the biggest, most impactful soundbite and then you know, fly away that you're going to actually be here in this community as we really struggle with what are quite profound and quite significant issues. Right. And they participated because they knew that it was going to be a thoughtful discussion. In that town hall, we decided that we were going to bring social media in, and we had a lot of conversations about it because, you know, if you start to bring in, you know, a lot of people's voices around an issue, you know, it can it can get um, – off track really fast and people were nervous about it, but we thought, you know, look, we're public media. We have the ability to convene a conversation in that town hall, but we need to bring more people into the room. For sure. And it was a fantastic conversation and people came to it with the same respect because they saw what was happening in that room. Right. And I think that there needs to be more of those kind of conversations. And I, I charge our colleagues across the country to be with us in trying to figure this out. I think this is a moment for an organization like ours that has the trust of the public uh, to really play a larger role in trying to convene a national dialogue about the big issues, the issues that matter. And the temptation, though, so often to do more opinion-based journalism, and I don't mean that's a bad thing, like you look at MSNBC, Fox News, they certainly do they have they certainly do that. They do it well in a lot of cases. That temptation is there. People enjoy that sort of thing. When you have conversations or when your news division has conversations, how like how do you talk about your mission and like how to, to stay on it and how to stay focused well, on it? I, I think that they're they're actually two very different paths. One is the journalism itself, and facts mm-hmm. are facts. Yeah. You know, so I think that if you're in the in the journalism space, you stay in that lane. I think opinion is also very appropriate, mm-hmm. but you can't jump back and forth between the two. You right. can't be a jo- journalist and a pundit. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that um, you know, from my perspective, um, I think this is where. You know, some media organizations really struggle because they blend the two. And I think it's important if you're if you're reporting the news, if you're reporting the facts, to be very clear about that. And if you are talking about opinion, you're very clear about that and you label it as such. Right. And that's the discussion that we always have. What is fact? What is opinion? And making sure that when we're doing a piece, we just did a a documentary that was an opinion piece. It was clear from the title it was an opinion piece. But some of the response is from people that that, um, 
weren't sure that's what it was. And so we, the internal conversations we're having right now are really about how do we make sure on a sustained basis that if we're bringing forward something that really is point of view, mm-hmm. that it's very clear that it's point of view and that it's not offered up as uh, in, in the same way that a frontline would be offered up as an investigative journalism piece. Right, right. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click, and then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, and it's better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails, no calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. My home station when I was growing up, South Dakota, public broadcasting. I'm you, going to South going Dakota to South for Dakota. the first time in October, and I'm so excited We've about it. We've talked about this before. <laughs> where, are you, where are you going in South Dakota? Uh, I'm going to, uh, I, I'm not sure, actually. The, the, um, and I'm not being cagey. The, uh, the head of um, Julie Anderson, who runs the state network, right. and as you know, it is a state network, is actually putting my trip together. So I, I don't know yet what she's got planned for me, but I'm, I'm excited about it because I haven't been. And uh, she's done a, a, a she's done great work across the state, and and um, I'm looking forward to seeing it firsthand. If you're dri- if you're driving along I-90, which you almost have to do when you're mm-hmm. in, when you're in South Dakota between Sioux Falls and Mitchell, look for the giant metal sculptures of like cow heads. They're like outsider art. They're brilliant. They're they're just beautiful, and you can see them from the interstate. That is my recommendation. All right, but I'll like- look, I'll look for the cow heads. <laughs> I'm on I'm on Interstate 90 looking for the cow heads. <laughs> but um, if you are uh, if you're a South Dakota Public Broadcasting or, you know, the station in Ferguson or something like this, how much autonomy do you have to serve your community versus like, um, like say, I don't know why anybody would do this because it's a great piece, but say somebody didn't want to air the Vietnam War this fall, like do they have the autonomy to just not put it on? Yes. Okay. So ultimately, and that's the thing that uh, the people never understand about uh, public broadcasting is that, um, you know, that these are all independent, autonomous stations. And um, yeah, I remember when I took this job and people said, wow, you know, you're going to be running this network. It's got all these stations. That's really cool. And I said, well, you know, it is really cool, but it's not what you think. Hmm. It's, I said, it's, it's a little bit in reverse. Those 350 stations actually run me. So if you understand how we were set up, uh, originally when public broadcasting was started in this country, it was started because first woman FCC commissioner, a woman by the name of Frida Hennick, mm. had this idea that this emerging technology of television was going to be hugely influential and powerful. And in this country, commercial television came first. In, in many other countries, the uh, UK, for example, the BBC came first and then commercial television came second. Here, commercial marketplace first, and she watched this industry evolve, and she thought that the commercial marketplace was going to do a lot, but that the medium would never reach its full potential unless there was some piece of it that was specifically dedicated to the public interest. And so she lobbied very hard over a period of years that a part of the spectrum should be set aside for then what was described as educational purposes. Mm-hmm. Spectrum was put aside, and organizations around the country could then Um, petitioned for some of that spectrum, and then set up local stations. The very first station that was set up was established in um, Houston, out of the University of Houston. And so so as this industry began to evolve, um, all of these stations were separate. It was 50 years ago that Lyndon Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act that actually was the result of some work that had been done by the Carnegie Corporation that had looked at... Um, the possibility of a public media system that would look a little bit more like the BBC. And the idea was then that rather than create this national network 
big N network, we would create a national network, little n, that's more like a Mm co-op. So all of our stations join PBS. They send dues every year, which we use to put a program schedule together. We maintain the satellite interconnection for the system. We create the all of the digital work, um, beginning with our, uh, PBS.org, but also the architecture for a lot of the station's websites and so forth. But that we would we would remain a locally based system. Yeah. And so we have a lot of rules of engagement of what does it mean to be a PBS station. Um, but at the end of the day, the stations have ultimate Autonomy. So if a station decided for whatever reason that they didn't want to run Vietnam, mm-hmm. they don't have to run Vietnam. Yeah. But I think all the stations understand that um, that by coming together um, and agreeing that a, that a number of the hours, particularly in prime time, we all run together, we can then promote things together. We can do big projects like the Great American Read and others that really create a larger conversation and, and as well as a local one. But if you're, if any of your listeners wonder, I go from I go from state to state. I visit another station. It doesn't look like my old station. It's running different things. I can't find something that. It's because the local station ultimately makes the decision. Yeah, yeah. A lot of your programming as well originated from local stations. Um, things like the really recognizable programs like Masterpiece, uh, American Masters, things like that have are produced by member stations. How yeah. do you decide like which of those programs is going to go out? to the country at large. Yeah. So the majority of our work actually does come to us through our local stations. And um, what we have, um, a couple things. One is we have a chief programming executive that is constantly looking for new ideas and is really thinking about our overall schedule. And she's always thinking about, you know, what are the stories that aren't being told that, you know, and and even in a, in a media environment that is as, as robust as the one that we're in right now, there's still big market failures. She's always thinking about that. She also has a panel of advisors. She has a couple of them. She has a small group of the major market stations, but she has a larger group of station advisors that she talks to. And um, she gets feedback from them about, um, you know, uh, program ideas and things that they would like to see. Then when we're pitched new program ideas, particularly for new series, mm-hmm. not not necessarily just one-off documentaries, but if we're pitched with big ideas, then she will talk to them about it yeah. and get feedback. Because what you don't want to do is put a lot of energy and commitment and money against a project that no one actually wants. And so, um, and so that kind of dynamic feedback is has been really important for us in making sure that we're creating programs that meet the needs of the communities that we serve. How did you get involved in in working for PBS? Like, what, what's your what's your history with the, with the company? So I've been in this job for eleven and a half years. Uh, hard to believe. Mm. Um, and uh, but for thirteen years before that, I was at WNET. And I had um, some different roles there uh, in New York, but um, ultimately I was the station manager and the COO. And I was involved uh, with some of the um, work that we were doing nationally. I sat on a couple of of committees of stations around the country on some work. So when they were looking for a new CEO, um, I got a call from the search committee and actually told them I had no interest in this job. <laughs> I loved being in New York doing the work that I was doing. I loved being able to create programs that connected to the local community. Um, and I had no, I knew this was a complicated job and I knew I didn't want it. Uh, but a few of my um, uh, professional colleagues and frankly, my husband mm-hmm. encouraged me to, um, to actually at least meet with the search committee. And I was persuaded because I had ideas of what I thought um, should happen with public broadcasting. And I could see some of the, of the um, possibilities that were on the horizon. And I was concerned that, um, you know, PBS had, had gone through a period where it had a complicated relationship with the stations. This is um, uh, whenever I hire anyone, I make sure they really understand who we are because we are a media organization, but we're also a membership organization and you have to love both sides of it. And my predecessor and her predecessor had had some challenges on the membership side. And I felt there were things that needed to be done because I thought that the system actually had the risk of of separating unless someone could come in and bring it together. Right. And um, so I, I decided I'd go talk to the search committee and just tell them what I thought. Right. And, uh, you know, if you interview for a job, you have to kind of think about 
what you would do in it. You have to really put yourself in it. And after that first interview, um, which went really well, by the way, um, <laughs> after that first interview, yeah. I thought, wow, maybe I actually should think about this. And, yeah. and so, um, and so when I had the opportunity to do the job, I thought, well, I'll do this for a couple of years. And now, as I said, I'm, I've been in it for 11. I'm, I'm, I've been in this job longer than any of my predecessors. So, mm. um, it's been it's been great, and the and the world has changed so much in the time that I've been here. From when I first uh, took the job, um, I remember in my first speech talking about the fact that Apple was going to sell episodes of Desperate Housewives for a dollar ninety nine on mm-hmm. iTunes, and it sounded so weird. Like who would buy <laughs> an episode of Desperate Housewives for a dollar ninety nine? And, you know, um, someone gave me a subscription to Netflix so I could get DVDs sent to me in the mail, yeah. you know, and that just felt like such a great thing. So I wasn't going to have to go to the, you know, uh, Blockbuster to get my DVDs. And so, I mean, you just look at how the world has changed in this period. It's been the most fascinating time, I think, in in media. And right. so to, to be in an organization like PBS, which is focused – on the um, service to the public rather than just figuring out how to derive maximum return for st- um, shareholders has been just really great. Yeah, yeah. Before you were at WNET, were, were, were you someone who'd always wanted to work in television or was that something interesting to you or were you, did you sort of fall into it? I fell into it. I, mm-hmm. You know, I started my life thinking I was going to medical school. I took organic chemistry, which I failed, mm-hmm. had to reevaluate my life, took a lot of humanities and arts courses because I was interested in it, panicked that I would never be gainfully employed, got mm-hmm. a degree in business. This actually is great training for public broadcasting, by the way, <laughs> a little bit of everything. <laughs> And then, um, and then graduated with a business degree and no clear sense in the world of what I was going to do. I ended up um, getting a job uh, working for UNICEF mm-hmm. in Washington, and um, the nonprofit part is what actually stuck with me. So I never thought I'd end up in media. My grandfather was involved in starting the public radio station in Baltimore, which is where I grew up. And I, you know, I always, I loved music. I, I listened to the radio a lot. And, you know, so I, I often now say that maybe it was in my DNA from my grandfather's influence. I don't know, but it's, um, you know, you just, I think when I talk to kids now and they think they've got their whole life mapped out and figured out what they're going to do, I always say, you know, you don't, <laughs> and you shouldn't, you know, just leave yourself open. You know, I think some of the people that have the coolest jobs in our industry now are in are doing jobs that didn't exist when I came into this job. Right. You know, so I think that this is just a, you know, it's a great time, you know, as you look at so many industries that are evolving. And I think for young people coming up to be really flexible and thinking about the possibilities of the future is probably the best advice anyone can give them. Yeah, yeah. When I fire up a Netflix or an Amazon, there's always a lot of PBS content there. Mm-hmm. I think Downton's exclusive to Amazon. And then you have a lot of the Ken Burns stuff on Netflix. What's that relationship like? What is it like to be able to have that conduit of, you used to sell a lot of DVDs, and I assume that DVD market is kind of lessening over time. What has that been like to have that streaming market come up and, and uh, I guess, be another way for people to get your content? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, um, a really interesting um, transition over these years. We still, believe it or not, sell a lot of DVDs. Mm. People uh, want, um, particularly of, of, uh, for people like Ken, you know, they, they, they like to own that, you know, those hard goods. Um, but, um, that's exactly why we began our relationships with, uh, companies like Amazon and Netflix, um, in that we, you know, as you look at the, at the, um, shift from buying DVDs to streaming services, it was a way to, um, you know, to bring in revenue, uh, that helps us to make the work possible. But the thing that about these services that's also been interesting for us is that it also helps to create the market. You right. know, it's been great promotion to have, you know, Ken's work there and as particularly as we're looking at the next big series coming up. And so what we've been doing over these last few years is a lot of soul searching around where are people viewing content and where are the places that we should be? And mm. so we've done a lot of experimentation over the years. Um, you know, we were very early on Roku. Uh, we've been trying to, on most of the platforms where we distribute, obviously not Amazon and Netflix, but many of the others, if you have an Apple TV, you have to localize to your local station. So what we've done is not only create a destination for 
content that PBS is sharing with our stations, but also making sure that their local content is also up on those platforms too. So we help them build all the infrastructure so that if you localize, um, look, I spend time in Maine. I love Maine. So if I if if I have for my Apple TV, I localize it to Maine Public Broadcasting. Sure. I watch um, the national programming, but I also see all the productions out of uh, Maine Public Broadcasting. And so it's not it's it's as close to an environment like broadcast as um, I think um, you could hope to get. And, and that's worked out really well. There's been places where we have um, had content like Xbox. We were there for a while. We're not there right now. Yeah. Um, we're spending time, um, as we've thought about the kids' work, for kids' programming. We're interested in games as well as um, uh, Destination for Linear Television. So we have in the kids' channel we just launched, it's probably the best example of how we think about the world. So we have content available on broadcast. We have content that is streamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are now working so that later this year we'll um, we'll start to embed games into the stream. So if your kid is watching something, they can stop, play the game, which reinforces the lesson of what they're watching. And then you know we distribute um, on Amazon, so you can get kids content on Amazon. Uh, we have um, you know the PBS Kids app, so you can watch free content there. So it's this it's this mix of free. Um, and the evolution of the DVD business with some of the streaming services. And um, it gives us both the reach and the revenue that has been able to, you know, sustain us moving forward. So in the last few years, we've gone from the 15th most watched um, network or cable to six. Mm. And I think part of that is great programming. It all starts with content. But I think part of it also is that we've not been afraid to, um, to really look at all these different platforms as a way to extend our reach. So Downton Abbey was uh, your highest rated show since the Civil War. I think you put out several mm-hmm. press releases to that effect. Yep. Um, when you first got that show, A, when you first got that show, did you know it was going to become what it did? And B, obviously PBS is not, you know, is not chasing hits like other networks. But um, do you th- do you sort of look out there and think, that you can find another Downton, or do you think those just sort of just sort of arrive? No one knew that Downton was going to be the phenomena that it turned out to be. Um, no one, the producers, no one connected with it. Thought, I mean, I, I think everybody thought it would be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, building off of this idea of creating a TV series based on Gosford Park yeah. um, seemed like a um, a solid idea and very much in keeping with an audience that comes to us on Sunday nights looking for a certain kind of programming. The fact that it became such a phenomena and, you know, we could spend, you know, we could probably spend a half an hour now talking about why that, why that happened. You know, it's a certain alignment of, you know, really great content, really great casting, characters people cared about, all that stuff. I think it came at a really good time. You remember the financial downfall had just happened. People were watching more television. It premiered, although you all gave me a hard time within the TCA about the scheduling of it. The fact that we broadcast it in January when people were home and it was dark and it was cold and and uh, it was, you know, you were in that post-holiday slump. I think that helped. Um, social media helped a lot because people were watching it and it gave them a form where they could start talking about it. And then, as you know, um, they started creating their own Twitter identities based on the characters. And then it's, it, it, it truly is one of these projects that went viral. I just, I just did an interview with a, a guy by the name of Derek Thompson who wrote a book called Hitmakers that just came out. And the whole and the book is is really about why some things pop and some things don't. And and he and I had a long conversation about uh, this whole idea of viral because you know things suddenly seem to explode and it feels like suddenly everyone's talking about something. And what viral often means is not exactly that that suddenly everyone's talking. It just happens to be like a network of people start talking about it. And someone that has a large number of Twitter followers. Um, if they start talking about something and then all their followers pick it up, it's 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 reaching out to in a network and and really riding that network effect rather than creating a true viral experience where it right. just explodes linearly one to one. And so Downton had just a lot of stuff going for it, including the fact that people that had large networks were talking about it, and then it was everywhere. It was on the it you know it was on all the evening shows, and there were memes, and you know it just was it was just omnipresent. 
I think that those kind of lightning in a bottle events um, happen. And I think it's hard to plan for them. What are the things that will pop out? I think you can put a lot of energy into thinking about, you know, what has the potential to pop. But there are a lot of people that thought that those days would never happen for public broadcasting again. They remember actually when the Civil War was was like a Downton Abbey, which sounds weird. But, (laughs) you know, when the Civil War premiered, Everyone talked about it. It was one of the top-rated shows of the um, of that broadcast season. And so I think these moments happen, and I think that for us, you just have to recognize that you got to seize them. One, always look for them, never think that that moment has passed. And when you do have them, you want to try to ride it for whatever it's worth. You really want to use it as ways to get more people engaged. You really want to look for ways that— you can connect and uh, and bring in ta- um, other projects like that, and you know we'll see. Um, uh, you know we have we've had some other dramas that have been very successful um, in this past season. Um, Victoria, in particular, that first season of Victoria, it's been shadowed a little bit by The Crown, mm-hmm. uh, but Victoria had a huge audience in its first season, and we'll see how that begins to build. And we keep looking for other great dramas that have the possibility of a Downton and really bringing in, you know, lots of different um, viewers, including people that aren't traditionally watching us on a regular basis. Uh, you did you did Mercy Street for a couple of seasons, which was the first uh, um, American. American scripted right. drama in many, many years. Mm-hmm. The scripted drama space right now is so crowded, is so crazy, and budgets are getting through larger the, and larger. Through, through the roof. How yeah. does how does PBS compete in that space when you can't shell out, you know, 10 million an episode to make we, Game of Thrones? We can't, uh, yeah, we can't, uh, you know, so it's funny that I just mentioned The Crown and we keep having these internal discussions about whether the numbers are real, but if, um, if the Netflix numbers are real, they spent more on the production of The Crown than is my entire broadcast budget for uh, general audience, co- you know, content. So you cannot compete there. Mm. Uh, but as I um, as I said to the critics earlier today, you know, we're, you know, we've always been kind of scrappy, and we look for partnerships to enable us to build stuff. So we have another drama series based on a American story, which is Little Women, which we'll broadcast this year. Um, and we're looking for another American story. We have a uh, we have at least two that are in consideration right now. And if we're just bidding against another broadcaster that's going to take it then it should go somewhere else. I, right. I'm looking for the programs that, you know, look, believe me, um, you know, our partnership with, with Downton was forged because it was a project that fit public broadcasting and there wasn't huge interest in Downton Abbey from mm-hmm. the others. So I think we'll find the right project for us to do as our next American drama. I think about this a lot because a lot of the BBC or British content you import is, um, you know, Dickens adaptations, adaptations of great British authors. And certainly we used to have in the film industry, they do adaptations of great American books, but that's sort of fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Is, is that an area you think PBS could could sort of slide into. You mentioned Little Women, and that's yeah. obviously... Yeah, so I, you know, I think our space in drama is... Uh, again, And again, we think about this a lot because I don't want to be in an environment where I'm just competing with, um, you know, with HBO or others. I think that, you know, each... If you look at all of the, um, you know, different networks, they each have their own sort of signature style for what they're, what they're looking for. Um, and I think for us... You know, dramas that are based in either literature or historic fact, which is what obviously Mercy Street was, um, is um, is really our fit. And so that's the kind of project that we're looking for. We're looking for something that actually, when one sees it, one says, oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that on PBS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody tweeted earlier today um, that their favorite part of, of every PBS day at TCA is when you subtly uh, drop some shade on some of your cable competitors who have gotten away. I, I try not to do that this time, but I guess I did a little bit. I stopped myself. I started to go a little too far, and I just like, walked myself back. <laughs> um, and I remember when I was growing up, there was sort of this idea that PBS was outdated, that cable, that these niche cable channels could fill that role. But we've seen them... Move a, away lot, from, a lot of rela- reality programming later. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we've seen them move away from arts and yeah. uh, educational that sort of that sort of programming. Do you look at your competitors in that space and like are there some that you you still like, have some programs on other networks that uh, are arts and education that you think are working really well? Yeah, I mean, look, I um, you know it's funny when someone does a project that um, 
And I'm just thinking, I'm trying to think of a really good uh, example right now. Well, the crown is a good example. I love the crown. And um, I would have loved to have done, you know, that series. But um, one, I certainly wouldn't have had the budget to do it. But I think that, I think Netflix's decision to do The Crown was influenced by Downton Abbey. And so I think that if we're doing programming that inspires others to do programming like it, then we should just claim victory and continue to move forward. And, um, you know, because I think that, you know, if you do great television, particularly if it picks up an audience, then that begets more great television. And at the end of the day, if what we're trying to do is create experiences that um, engage then I, I don't really care if they're watching it on our channel or if it's something that's now produced for another channel. I'm, you know, happy to see National Geographic stepping up its game again and uh, others that I think do, you know, some really beautiful things. Sometimes I have to talk our head of programming off the ledge, you know, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if she's uh, trying to attract something and then it ends up going somewhere else. But I always remind her, look, if someone else has picked up a project that you're interested in, that's great. It just means more good television out there. You just have to work harder to find something that's unique in ours. What is it about PBS that allows you to keep doing that? Uh, certainly a lot of it is the economic model, but what is it that allows you to keep doing that and not necessarily have to keep chasing hits as opposed to uh, something like a, a TLC or an A&E or something like that? Well, you know, look, our funding um, is set up because people and communities want us there. And they think that we're doing something that's different and unique. And I think that when you're chasing hits, you end up looking like everyone else. And that is not to say that you can't do amazingly creative and impactful work. I'm really excited that we're, we are um, inspired by, you know, Kenneth Clark's Civilization series, for example, and we'll be doing another great sweeping series on art, which hasn't been done. We haven't done it in a long time. And I think that one of the criticisms of the original series is that it was Eurocentric, which this Civilization series will definitely not be. And so I think that doing projects like this that are new and different, and by the way, they're not always, you know, the big bets. You know, we forged a partnership on what seemed like a nice, sweet little show called British Bake Off, which has, mm. you know, become hugely popular. And, um, you know, so I, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to find different work. And we have a lot of to do that. Part of the reason that we've been so... I think successful in all the work we're doing on multi-platforms is that every time I enter, we enter a new project, our first question isn't, and how are we going to make a lot of money off of it? The first question always is, and what is it going to do to help the people that watch us? Mm. And if you come at a new project with that lens, it gives you, you know, a lot of latitude. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to run an organization that operates in the black, Mm -hmm. and we have to figure out a way that we're going to raise the money somewhere. But having the freedom that I don't have to monetize everything that we're doing, it's why we're doing a 24-hour children's channel. If I was running a commercial business, I'd be running infomercials all night. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not doing that because I know that there are a lot of kids who are up in the middle of the night and... We've heard from hospitals and others that feel like it's important for us to have a presence there. It's, um, you know, it's why we pick the subjects that we do that, you know, some may seem really popular and others may seem a little bit more esoteric. But for the people for whom it resonates, it's hugely important. The arts are never going to have a huge audience. You put dance on television, you put visual arts on television, you put theater on television, you will have a passionate audience, not an enormous audience. But our funding model, the fact that people will give us money because they care, they want to see opera, um, and they don't, you know, they may not have access in their own community, um, allows us to put something like that on the air, knowing that we're not going to get millions and millions and millions of people. Though every once in a while, you know, it sort of pops and you're surprised and you think, wow, that's great. <laughs> As you head into the next, let's say, five years, assuming the the funding question works itself out in your favor, what are some areas uh, that you are looking at that you feel like maybe you're a little light on right now or maybe areas of programming you'd like to expand into? Or, or what are some things you're looking at as you head into the end of the 2010s? So we're looking at a couple of things. One is um, I, I, I love Ken, uh, Ken Burns. I love the work that he's doing and and so forth. But I think that 
we really need to double down and and find the next Ken Burns. We need mm-hmm. to double down and find um, more storytellers. Um, this is a, a country that is increasingly diverse, and, I, and that's tremendously important to us as we look at people in front of and behind the camera. And uh, that's an area that I, I think is of significant importance. And I think the third area that um, in the next few years, it, I, I, we just continue to wrestle with is this whole question of the arts, which I've touched on. You know, I, I travel around the country, as I've mentioned before, and I see amazing uh, performers and performances in communities across the country and figuring out how to capture that and bring it to a national audience, both in terms of, you know, sharing what's happening locally, but also really giving people a sense of the breadth of the of possibility. It's not that I want to turn our country into a country of artists, but I think that I think giving, you know, particularly kids an opportunity to see things that they may develop a passion around is tremendously important. And, and I'm not sure we've quite hit on the right formula of how to do that. So yeah. that's one of the big things that I continue to wrestle with as um, you know, we look out over the next couple of years. We're heading into the end of the show, but I, I, I do have to ask a Ken Burns question, which is there has not been a relationship as in American television quite like the one PBS and Ken Burns have. At this point, uh, you know, nearly 30 years past the Civil War, which was his big breakthrough. Like, what, what's that? What's what's your relationship with him like? If he comes in and says, I want to do 22 hours on Chester Arthur, the ch- the gentleman boss, do you just be like, okay, go for it? Well, um, one would think 30 years later, you know, whatever Ken does, Ken does. Mm. But we have a lot of conversations about his work. And he works on multiple projects at the same time. So I could actually pretty well tell you most of what he's going to do over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it's really great stuff. And occasionally we'll have debates about, yeah, do we really need another documentary on? We talked a lot about the 10th inning of baseball, but he won based on the Red Sox. Um <laughs> He is not someone that is for want of telling great stories. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a gift to be able to work with someone like that. Yeah, great. So we end every podcast by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those questions now. Here comes the lightning yeah, round. Yeah, the lightning round. Let's start with uh, what is the most recent pop culture thing, TV show, movie, book, album, whatever, that you have uh, consumed, listened to, read, whatever, and what did you think of it? Well, the book that I read that I just thought was just so uh, wonderfully weird is Lincoln and the Bardo. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. I hope someone makes that into a film. I thought that was just a great, great book. Yeah, yeah. uh, Have you read a lot of other George Saunders? No. It was like a revelation for me. So... Do you have a suggestion for me? Uh, I have, I like all his short story collections. I think uh, probably, I think it's called Pastoralia. I'm going to like get really mad because I got it wrong. Pastor- I think it's Pastoralia. I, I yeah. think it is Pastoralia. Yeah, that, that's my favorite. Yeah, I love yeah. short stories. So uh, yeah, yeah, so I'll great. That. Um, we could do this book gig together, you and me. <laughs> <laughs> we should. My next one is, who is the person you've learned the most from that you've never met? Oh, that I've never met. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, this may sound... Uh, because I bet a lot of people would would answer it, but um, I've always greatly admired Eleanor Roosevelt, mm. and um, just against extraordinary odds, she forged her own path, and um, I think that uh, was hugely influential to so many people. A woman that really did not have to do anything yeah. and chose to use her life and her gifts, um, I think, is just extraordinarily powerful. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I loved the the Roosevelt's miniseries from a few years. Just for, and, and that was yeah. not a link to promoting Ken Burns again. <laughs> but I I was delighted when he said that he was going to do that project. I think yeah. she's um, she's just she was an extraordinary person. And and our final question is: uh, This can't be a PBS show. I apologize. But what what is your favorite TV show, non PBS division uh, that you've ever seen? It can be a movie or miniseries too. TV that I've ever movie. seen. That you've ever seen. Yeah. In my whole life. In your that whole I've life. Never seen? Jeez. Jeez, this couldn't be a lightning round question. <laughs> I, I, you know, the best. Well, the most impactful series on me um, 
growing up. And so I don't know if best is the right word, but the most impactful is I Love Lucy. Oh, yeah. I grew up watching I Love Lucy in reruns. Yeah. I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> and um, it, it's just, I, you know, I still watch those shows. I mean, that's, uh, those were, that was an amazing series. That was an amazing series. Do you have a favorite episode or bit from that show? I love the uh, I love fight a meat of vegemite. Yeah, you know that's just a that's a that's a particularly favorite of mine, and everyone loves the chocolate factory. Um, those are those are two that I really love. Yeah, I, but fight a meat of vegemite. I like. I remember being about uh, fifteen, sixteen, and thinking I was too cool for I Love Lucy, and then seeing coming across fight a meat of vegemite on uh, on Nick at Night, and being like, wow, this woman could really. She was really funny. She was yeah. really funny. Yeah. She yeah. was really funny. Well, uh, PBS, of course, you can find it on your TV, but you can find it at pbs.org, and uh, you can find their programming on Netflix, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Paula Kerger, thank you for joining us. It was wonderful to be with you, Todd. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. The heads of Vox Podcasting are Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. And our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And we recorded this week's episode at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California. Uh, Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you found it. If that was Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, you know, you found it under a rock somewhere, leave a review under that rock so that everybody else who checks that rock for the great podcast will know to check this one out. It helps us climb in the rankings and it helps us get really great guests. You folks are the ones who keep this show going and we greatly appreciate you listening. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. And until then, remember to check your local listings. Thank you.